This is exactly right. So we come in through the front door, right? You've got the main hallway. And then directly off the main hallway is this door, which is why I think it was a parlor or a study, maybe a dining room. So it's now a guest bedroom where you can stay. Mm -hmm. But look at how big that fireplace is. This was meant to be a public space. Historian and interpreter Nicole Brown was my guide in Williamsburg, Virginia for a few days. And then after I left, she offered me a tour on FaceTime of Colonel John Chisel's sprawling home in the heart of the town. I had already left Virginia by the time she was given access to his property. His estate is now called the Chisel Bucktrout House, and it's now a historical building where you can rent a room and enjoy an authentic home in Colonial Williamsburg. Chisel's house has nine rooms on two floors, including several fireplaces. Nicole is the one who contacted me about this story. She's helped me with the research, with scheduling experts, everything. I've been very lucky because I've had so many relatives contact me over the years about the stories in their family histories and why they think it's important to tell these stories. Nicole is a historian who is also a big true crime fan, my favorite combination. So I should preface this by saying I'm, I'm deeply interested in this case because I love true crime and uh, to the point where that's pretty much all I listen to and think about when I'm not at work. Mm-hmm. The interesting thing about this case, both in the 1760s as well as today, is that there's a lot of rumor, innuendo, and speculation surrounding the case. John Chisel and his gilded world were impressive on the surface, particularly to the guests inside this house in the 1760s. Nicole describes the home for me. So he's definitely trying to wine and dine the elite, continue to represent himself as elite, reflect his status in his house. And from looking at it, it's gorgeous, but that's definitely what he's trying to do. The architectural details in Chisel's home are really impressive. They all signal prosperity, or at least they're supposed to convince visitors that the Chisel family was excessively wealthy. So here's a great example. So you have this big fireplace, right? It's not just the fireplace to build the fireplace. You have to be able to afford the bricks. You have to be able to import what you need in terms of tongs and fire dogs. And then you have enslaved labor who are going to help run and clean and manage the fireplace. So all of a sudden, a fireplace, which is, you know, a very sort of essential basic human need, it provides heat, right? It stops just being utilitarian, and it starts to define someone's status. And so I think it's actually a really good example of the whole house. John Chisel's obsession with status began with his father, Charles Chisel. Charles had gifted his son thousands of acres in Scotchtown in Western Virginia, including a mansion house and numerous assets. He also left John a secure spot in the growing aristocracy of Virginia. He had been the justice of the peace, and he owned a horse named Edgecombe that had won a race in the Williamsburg Fair. I know that doesn't seem like a big deal, but it was to the gentry. John Chisel had been a member of the House of Burgesses for 15 years. And by 1766, his daughters had married well, which was unfortunately what was expected of them, to become a bridge between two families. Marriage expanded a family's resources, and it might also increase their debt, 
depending on the other family. Chisel's middle daughter, Susanna, had married John Robinson, the colony's treasurer and the Speaker of the House of Burgesses, as well as one of the richest planters in Virginia. The second most influential lawmaker in the colony was Charles Carter, and Chisel's second eldest daughter, Elizabeth, had married him. Historian Julie Richter says that in 1766 Williamsburg, status was incredibly important. So if somebody came to Chisel's house, he would want to be able to put on an elaborate meal that would be served on the right china and you would eat with the right utensils. So if you're fearing debt, you're not going to be able to be a good host anymore. So that's going to strike at your personal honor. If you're a gentleman, part of your your masculinity is controlling all parts of your life. And if you're in debt, you've missed being able to control your finances, so you're not really in control. And John Chisel needed to stay in control. His wife and his four daughters depended on it. He is living beyond his means. He, he has um, you know, in, investments that aren't going well. You've got daughters you have to marry off. I know that term sounds terrible, but you usually provide the man who marries your daughter with money. You're not going to be giving your potential son-in-law land because you want to keep the land within your family. But yeah, by the 1760s, the elite are, many are in debt to their British, to their English merchants. Historian Robert Weathers says that debt wasn't particularly alarming to most colonists. Everybody was underwater. So, you know, here's the thing, you know, we, we may mention of debt a moment ago. Chisel's in debt, but whoop-de-doo. <laughs> Everyone in Virginia is in debt. As a matter of fact, the colony is in debt. That's the whole system. The system is designed to be dependent on the mother country. It is illegal to export gold and silver from the island of Great Britain. Chisel's ego thrived on his status. But when his finances were threatened, so was that status. His wife endured many of his setbacks because despite their apparent wealth, John Chisel constantly made poor business decisions. But before we talk about those, let's talk about who was making money in 1700s Virginia. Who exactly were the gentry? Virginia had several nicknames, but in the 1700s, it was called Old Dominion because it was the first and oldest of the overseas dominions of England. The colony thrived on agriculture, and the gentry were landowners, and many of the wealthiest planters used their land to farm tobacco. The members of the tobacco gentry, including John Chisel and John Robinson, along with several of the founding fathers, were firmly in control of the politics of Virginia. But tobacco farming had begun spreading and shifting westward in the Commonwealth. More planters were popping up and becoming wealthy, so the ranks of the gentry in Virginia were swelling. With more gentry came more power, and John Robinson, as the colony's treasurer, became even more powerful. He controlled the colony's money, its debts, its profits, and its savings. But this new gentry class was determined to take away some of that power from the older planter aristocrats. And Robinson understood that if he slipped up, there were fledgling politicians just waiting to take his place. 
men like Patrick Henry, who were relatively new members of the House of Burgesses, were threatening Robinson's old guard, and the introduction of new taxes like the Stamp Act created a tension never really felt before. Robinson was seen as an insider, the epitome of the old entitled establishment, and he knew it. He held the debts of many of the men in the colony, including his own father-in-law, John Chisel. When Chisel moved to Williamsburg and purchased the large house on Francis Street, he was already in debt for several thousand pounds, which would be about 150,000 pounds today. There were lawsuits and liens against his home in the city and the one back in Scotchtown. But in 1759, his financial prospects finally changed. Remember that both he and his father were land surveyors, and Chisel had discovered lead ore in Augusta County to the northwest of Williamsburg. The story of the mines is interesting. By 1756, John Chisel had been engaged in mining near Fredericksburg, Virginia, but he wanted to expand his operation. He wanted to make more money. Chisel had no formal training in prospecting for ore, so instead of doing something scientific, he began slowly walking around the New River, quietly searching for valuable minerals. With his eyes trained down to the ground, Chisel didn't hear them at first. The story goes that a group of Native Americans threatened him, and despite surely being armed, Chisel ran. He weaved through the trees until he found a cave to slip into. As Chisel caught his breath, he saw it, a bounty of rich mineral deposits, the first significant deposit of lead in the colony of Virginia. Chisel's destiny, it seemed, was connected to these lead mines. Chisel gasped, smiled, and then listened. The Native Americans, we don't know which group this was, seemed to be gone. He ran from the cave, vowing to return to claim this incredible treasure, and soon he dubbed the cave Chisel's Hole. Chisel discovered more sources of lead around the cave, and he quickly applied to the colony for a grant to buy all that land. He soon owned it. And then Chisel approached both his son-in-law, John Robinson, and Virginia's governor to establish a new company, the Lead Mining Company, a very successful business venture, but it was also very speculative. And speculative ventures are often very risky. Chisel and a few other really important guys, including the governor of Virginia, go in on a project. Did they talk about Chisel's mine? Has anyone yeah, talked? A okay, bit, Chisel's yeah. mine. This mine was a big project. So here's how it worked. They began mining by digging out lead carbonate ore that was either already exposed or some that was just lying underneath the soil. Some of those minerals contained a huge amount of lead. According to historian John Bryan, a small smelting furnace was erected and soon pack trains of horses were carrying lead throughout the colonies. Situated in a remote and wild location, the operation progressed as smoothly as could be expected. 
In the 1700s, mines could be incredibly profitable. In 1762, Chisel hired miners, he bought supplies, and he also bought enslaved people. Robinson was his main source of funding, providing more than 8,000 pounds, which would be about $2 million today. Soon, John Chisel was a financial success once again, and he helped create a strong local economy. But historian Nicole Brown says that the mine's workforce paid a very heavy price. Well, he was a large employer, right? Weren't mm-hmm. those mines responsible for a lot of employment in that area? They were responsible for a lot of enslaved labor. So most of the people working in the mines were enslaved, and it was a brutal, brutal job. But if we're talking about most of those mines and lead being used in the colony for the benefit of the colony, yes. But the majority of people working in the mines were enslaved. Nicole says that Chisel forced 36 enslaved people to work on the site. She says it was a massive workforce, and mining was a very dangerous job. That's a theme we'll talk about soon, the lives of enslaved people, how they were used, abused, and also their role as witnesses in this case. Chisel and Robinson's lead mining company seemed to move along well until 1763, when King George III issued what would be called the Proclamation of 1763. This was at the end of the French and Indian War. The Crown set territorial limits on where colonists could settle in America. It was supposedly meant to appease Native Americans. The king had created a boundary known as the Proclamation Line, which prevented colonists from encroaching on indigenous lands. John Chisel's mine was now on Native American soil. This was really the beginning of Chisel's financial problems. The lead mining company no longer had an official title to the land, yet they continued to mine, dismissing any threat from the surrounding Native Americans. The mines on New River did continue production, but at great financial cost. The lead mines were becoming insolvent, but John Chisel was keeping that a secret from everyone. And remember, this season is all about secrets. By early 1766, all seemed to be well with the Chisels, to people who didn't understand their financial situation. John Chisel continued to pile on debts in hopes that the lead mines would soon turn a profit. Chisel might have had reason for hope. Carson Hudson is a historian and author with Colonial Williamsburg. As far as um, his financial future kind of looked like it might be bright, because if the lead mines boom, that would be paying off a lot of debts for him. Chisel was always scrambling for money to pay off debts so his family wouldn't go into bankruptcy. But his spending habits didn't help because he was chronically short on cash. In 1754, he ordered a large package of tobacco seed from a London mercantile house for 1,500 pounds, which is about $400,000 today. Chisel wanted to grow it on his land in Scotchtown, but he had no money so he requested a 2,000-pound loan at 7% interest. He would never be able to pay that back. John Chisel was simply terrible at business. He owed friends money. He had borrowed 1,300 pounds from another member of the House of Burgesses, William Byrd III. He owed his son-in-law, John Robinson, many thousands of pounds. 
Robinson ordered Chisel to put numerous properties in his name to settle the debt, including the tavern Chisel owned. Chisel and Robinson had a transactional relationship. Robinson loaned him money, and Robinson was also his chief partner in virtually all of Chisel's businesses. Many people in the colonies, as well as in England, were in debt. It was almost impossible not to be in debt because there was a trickle-down effect. If your employer was in debt and he couldn't pay you, then you couldn't pay your bills, and then your vendors couldn't pay theirs, and so on. It was a vicious cycle. On the other hand, John Robinson not only had power, but he had money. Lots and lots of money. He always seemed to have money to loan out. And Chisel depended on it. But now John Robinson was gravely ill, lying in bed at his estate in King and Queen County. It was dark outside that night in May of 1766. John Robinson was writhing in pain. He wasn't likely thinking of his father-in-law, but soon Robinson would consume all of Chisel's thoughts. Robinson would ruin his own family. And what would a ruined man do if given a terrible choice? As the colonies were headed toward war, Americans were defining who they were by taking sides. Were you loyal to the crown or to a brand new nation? Historian Cash Earhart sets the stage. Are we starting to call it a divided nation? Well, yeah. I mean, if you've ever seen the, the, the cartoon, the illustration that Benjamin Franklin drew of a snake chopped into pieces mm-hmm. and each one has a letter representing a, a colony or a region of the nation. And underneath it says, unite or die. And he creates that early in the French and Indian War to acknowledge the fact we are a divided people. Really, they think of themselves as subjects of the crown and residents of an individual colony. There is no common American identity uh, for the most part. In 1774, Patrick Henry attended the first Continental Congress in Philadelphia. He stood up and he gave a powerful speech about unity in the colonies. It was one of the most incredible speeches offered by Henry. He stands up and he gives a terrific speech. And he says, essentially, we need to do away with these petty self-identifying names. I am not a Virginian. I am not a Carolinian. I am not a New Englander. I am an American. The problem was that in 1766, All of the colonists were being ordered to pay expensive taxes thanks to a war that they never chose to take on, the French and Indian War, also known as the Seven Years' War. Historian Robert Weathers says that Parliament realized that they had made a difficult and potentially risky decision. So the British government looks around and they see the subjects on the island of Great Britain having already paid heavy taxes throughout the course of the war. Uh, which is never a popular thing, no matter what century you're living in. And so they say to themselves, hey, we need to find people who benefited from the war, who don't pay as high taxes, and still fall within our jurisdiction. So Parliament looked 3,000 miles across the Atlantic to the North American colonies. 
the colonies could help shoulder the crown's financial burden, and it was difficult to complain when you couldn't protest in person outside Parliament. Taxing the colonies was an easy solution. Virginia was soon in debt, and many Virginians couldn't pay those debts. The colony's planters faced a shortage of cash. The sheriffs couldn't collect those debts, which meant that the treasurer of Virginia couldn't pay the colony's debts. I asked historian Julie Richter to break down how we ended up at war based on several things, including the scandal that we have coming up. The colonists had had enough of high taxes, but they were also nervous about war. They're doing okay, but even a lot of other people are not ready to rock the boat. You know, uncertainty. Um, And if you're a tradesperson who gets your raw materials from England, you want those items to be coming in to the colony so you can continue your livelihood, support your family. But soon those tradespeople could no longer afford to build houses or horse carts or machinery. What good is it to not rock the boat when you're being pushed out of it by the crown? But this realization takes more than a decade for the colonists to sort out. It takes years, really, from the end of the French and Indian War, 1763 to 1776, for the colonies to kind of realize that they need to work together and then realize that they're not going to get what they want, so they declare independence. How's that for the American Revolution simplified? <laughs> Richter reminds us that the colony's treasurer was John Robinson, John Chisel's son-in-law. The Crown had gifted Robinson with an incredible amount of power. In the 1760s, he held two very powerful offices. He was treasurer of the colony and speaker of the House of Burgesses. So he basically controlled everything that happened in the lower portion of the colonial government. In the 1750s, the King of England recognized that Robinson had too much power, so he sent a representative to Virginia to force him out of one of those jobs. But the governor realized that Robinson was incredibly popular, and he literally held the purse strings of the crown's wealthiest colony. Undermining him publicly would have been a mistake, so Robinson continued to have absolute power While other men in the colony struggled, Robinson owned several thousand acres of land in half a dozen counties, several houses in the city, and about 400 enslaved people. Again, appearances mattered. When I write about the time period in America known as the Gilded Age in the late 1800s, that feels very much like 1700s Virginia. Opulence reigned there, and the more luxurious the good was, the more the gentry wanted it. Robinson cared very much about appearances. I think the money and shame are deeply interconnected. The elite of Virginia in the 18th century deeply needed to display who they were. If you were to come into Williamsburg in the 18th century, they wanted you to know that they were rich by how they appeared. Hmm. So their clothing, how they arrived into town, whether it was on horseback, if you were a man or if you were a family, you would come in a carriage. And part of this is connected to their idea of honor as well. And you were honorable if you had money. You were honorable if you could be a bountiful host. 
Robinson could also be very generous. He loaned money to his cash-strapped friends with very low interest, including his son-in-law, John Chisel. He loaned a lot of money to Chisel. Simon Robinson and Julie Richter explained the dynamic between Robinson and his father-in-law. My understanding is that, that when, um, when the, the scandal broke, um, Chisel was, may have been asset rich, but he was cash poor and possibly insolvent. So, you know, he'd had a major backer um, uh, through marriage with the, the Robinson family. Yeah, he is a window into the fragility of society at that point. On the surface, he would have certainly been considered gentry. He really would have been you know, that, that super gentry because of that connection through his daughter to John Robinson, who was the most powerful colonist, well-connected landowner, owner of enslaved men, women, and children. But it, yeah, some of it was, was surface level and a good part of it was tied to his um, investments and his connection to his son-in-law. But Chisel's connection to his chief financial backer was about to unexpectedly vanish. Early Sunday morning on May 11, 1766, John Robinson died at the age of 61. The local newspaper reported that he, quote, paid the last debt to nature after laboring some days with the most excruciating torments of the stone. It was probably kidney stones, which would have been very painful. I was a little surprised that someone could actually die of kidney stones, even back in the 1700s. I had always thought they were treatable, but they can be deadly if they're severe and if they aren't caught. Scientists have found kidney stones in Egyptian mummies, which likely led to their deaths, and those deaths would have been excruciating. John Robinson had died in immense pain. Susanna Robinson, Chisel's middle daughter, wept. And after a somber service, Robinson was laid to rest in his family's graveyard. But his secrets were about to be splashed across newspapers around the world. Now, the first of three scandals in our story begins to be revealed. Shortly after Robinson's death, Chisel was notified about something terrible for him and for many of the gentry of Virginia. You may have guessed by now that it has to do with money. You know, they're, they're all in there. They're all got their fingers in the pie. And uh, the Robinson scandal, of course, reaches everybody, including Patrick Henry, who owes like 11 pounds or something. He's other. Still, he's still yeah, he's still, yeah, and, and everybody else owes money. Uh, you know, they're all caught. It's, it's like all of a sudden, you know, the flashbulb went off and everybody's caught bad. <laughs> and it doesn't, it doesn't make the gentry look good. Relationships with our friends, our families, and our colleagues. A common misconception is that the easiest relationships are the best ones. But sometimes the most meaningful relationships are the ones that require the most amount of work. Therapy is a great place to work on any and all of the relationships in your life, including the one with yourself. 
Whether you're new to therapy or a longtime fan, consider giving BetterHelp a try. BetterHelp was created to fit into your busy life. It's entirely online and is designed to be convenient and flexible. I'm a huge fan of therapy, and I would love to be able to speak with a therapist online. I feel like I'm always on the go. I need that kind of convenience that BetterHelp provides. Become your own soulmate, whether you're looking for one or not. Visit betterhelp.com slash wicked today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash wicked. Our first scandal was politely referred to in 1766 as the Robinson Affair. Affair was too mild for what John Robinson did before he died. After his death in mid-May, the Speaker of the House of Burgesses was mourned. His friends and family lamented their loss. But then the humdrum business of government had to resume. And to get an idea about the size of the colony's debt, the Treasury needed to take a look at John Robinson's financial books. There had been some whispers that these books might not be as clean as they should have been, so his record-keeping and his accounts needed to be examined in detail. But they don't do it right away. Like, this is the kind of stuff that now, I mean, this is a big deal. We do it right away. Gentry people don't run from burning buildings, so they don't, like, run at major financial scandals fast, (laughs) especially when they know it's affecting a lot of the other people who are their peers who participated in this process. When they finally got around to it, Robinson's colleagues walked into his office, pulled out chairs, and began to examine his ledger books, his financial accounts. But they sit down with the books and they go, we got a problem. It seems that the most powerful man in Virginia, John Robinson, the man the entire colony had trusted to maintain their financial affairs, was a liar and a thief. But what he did is tricky. So I've asked a slew of historians to explain exactly what happened. The scheme that he was going under was to basically have the lower classes pay the debts of the upper classes by um, floating money. He did this by loaning his friends banknotes that were supposed to have been destroyed when they had been redeemed by the owner. He was supposed to burn the the notes which were being turned in, but he was lending them out to friends to reuse. He's lending them out to his friends at suspiciously low interest rates. And these are, these are, this is no small amount of money. So he was kind of like, the money was like being double dipped, uh, basically. John Robinson was making money off of the colony's own expired banknotes. He was taking money meant for the colony and loaning the notes to his friends and also spending it himself. There had been a, an economic shock in Virginia in the mid-1760s, and instead of burning the old banknotes that had been returned to the Treasury, he lent out that money to his friends and acquaintances, trying to help them maintain their businesses, and their plantation economy in Virginia. And on the basis that these friends and acquaintances and colleagues would at some stage pay him back and everything would be fine and the economy of Virginia would be sustained. 
Of course, that didn't happen because just about everyone in Virginia's gentry class was in debt in the 1700s. Everyone. So I wondered if John Robinson would have gotten away with this if he had lived. Would he have gotten caught? It's, you know, hundreds of thousands of pounds. And at least, you know, through surviving documents, it appears that few, if any, people knew what he was doing. Wow. No one knew what John Robinson had been doing. He had been stealing the equivalent of millions and millions of dollars. The gentry were left stunned. John Chisel, Robinson's father-in-law, was silent. He was surely embarrassed, humiliated, and alarmed because oftentimes it had been the surviving family who would be responsible for any financial burdens. After the Crown discovered that John Robinson was a thief, that he had nearly crippled the colony, the repercussions for Virginia's government were swift. One of the results of the fraud that Robinson committed was that the two offices he held Speaker of the House of Burgesses, should be like Speaker of the House of Representatives in our um, U.S. government today, and then Treasurer are separated. They're not going to put that much power in the hands of any one person again. The House of Burgesses did that six months after John Robinson's death. But Virginia was already reeling when the story leaked out to the newspapers and the middle class read the news. The gentry had been stealing money, their money. It really reinforced that there was something rotten at the heart of the way they were being governed. Everyone who was anyone in the upper classes seemed to be in debt to John Robinson, say historians Carson Hudson and Robert Weathers, and that included future founding fathers. The Robinson scandal, of course, reaches everybody, including Patrick Henry, who owes like 11 pounds or something. He's other. Still he's still yeah, he's still, yeah, and, and everybody else owes money. 11 pounds was about $2,300 today, which might not seem like much. But remember, Patrick Henry was the man who stood up in the House of Burgesses and declared that men like John Robinson shouldn't support the crown and its attempts to overtax the colonists. Doesn't that make Patrick Henry a little bit of a hypocrite? Other revelations followed when Robinson's financial records were revealed. One of the most famous debt cases in Virginia is that of William Byrd III. And I've heard rumors or read rumors of William Byrd III taking anywhere up to 30,000 pounds. To give you an idea of how much money that really is, a, a skilled tradesman in the city of Williamsburg, a journeyman tradesman, might have between 30 and 35 pounds in a year. So William Byrd, 30,000 pounds, an incredible amount of money. Even Patrick Henry is involved in this. He doesn't have nearly that much, but he is involved in taking... borrowing money from Robinson. Yeah, a lot of people are. Including Chisel. Right. John Chisel was in debt to him, too. Chisel's name was on the list of gentry who were now embroiled in this scandal. The middle and lower classes in the colonies were already furious over the Stamp Act, even if it had been repealed. Large taxes were just the beginning. And now the illustrious John Robinson had been stealing and virtually giving away money to his wealthy friends. But Chisel was now responsible, directly responsible, for his son-in-law's estate because Chisel was Robinson's executor. That role came with a lot of responsibility in the 1700s. It puts a huge, huge burden on the people who were called to settle Robinson's estate after he died. If you were in the colonial Virginia, the executor of an estate, you were financially responsible for it. Oh. 
Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. A good example of that family debt is founding father Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson suffered from huge debts that were eventually passed on to his grandson. He owed about $1 million in today's money at one point. He said that he was absolutely miserable because he couldn't pay it off. As we said earlier, debt was not unusual for Virginia tobacco planters, but Jefferson, it turns out, was also not a very good businessman. And his years in public service caused him to neglect his tobacco crops. Part, but not all, of Thomas Jefferson's financial problems were due to the fact his father-in-law died deeply indebted. Oh, wow. And Jefferson obviously had a little bit of a debt problem. That was his own, but he also was responsible for John Wales's debts. So Chisel being connected to John Robinson is just going to be overwhelming once you realize what had happened and what he had done with the money in Virginia. Family really mattered in colonial America. Family could make your life comfortable or it could make your life hell. John Chisel would be legally responsible for his father-in-law's debts, but how do you pay off the debts of a son-in-law when you owe him so much money? And how did all of this happen? It's easy to re-examine history and detect missteps that altered the course of so many people. One large mistake that lawmakers in Virginia made, of course, was offering a man like John Robinson so much power without any real system of checks and balances. If I could put myself in the shoes of a member of the House of Burgesses at that time, or, or the council, so the, the upper chamber of, of government, I would have somebody watching the treasurer very closely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You can't assume that economic stability will be there. Virginia was the most prosperous colony. But now, thanks to John Robinson, it was in deep financial trouble there was the risk that the entire colony would go bankrupt. Even in the most prosperous of England's colonies, that Robinson chose to do what he did in the face of economic uncertainty at the end of the French and Indian War. I think you have to, you'd you'd want to watch a little bit more closely. Mm -hmm. It's just the, 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 the financial mess he created rippled through the revolution. While John Chisel would have been responsible for Robinson's debts, regardless of the scandal, his son-in-law's corruption made it all so much worse for him. If Robinson had not embezzled the funds when he died, there might have been some debt, but it wouldn't have been dishonorable debt. It would have been the debt like all the other elite had. Mm-hmm. And his executors would still have been responsible for paying off his debt, but it wouldn't have been nearly as big. Julie's phrase, dishonorable debt, is key here. Being subjected to dishonorable debt was humiliating for a man like Chisel and his daughter Susanna because she was married to Robinson. Without the scandal, Susanna would have mourned her husband, but now, She was also embroiled in Robinson's crimes. That stress would not have been in Chisel's life. Mm -hmm. That his daughter, yes, she still would have been a widow. She still most likely would have had debt. But again, it wouldn't have been dishonorable debt. It wouldn't have been been overwhelming debt. And if we, we, you know, thinking with our 21st century medical knowledge, if you take that kind of stress off a person, it's 
yeah, it's not going to take, Chisel wouldn't have had the same physical and mental and emotional stress. John Chisel was in misery. He was hopelessly insolvent. His son-in-law was dead and then mired in a scandal. His family was on the brink of bankruptcy. And now the Chisel and Robinson names bore a black mark. Simon Robinson says that John Chisel seemed like a doomed man. I mean, just having that key relationship fall away um, with the death of Robinson, that was all immediately a shock. Then the unfolding financial scandal, that taint would have been on on Chisel. And, you know, that rumour mill um, about, oh, it's all of the uh, planters, all of the the top people are in this together. You know, they're doing fine, they're scratching each other's backs. All of that would have been poured over and would have, you know, really been a major issue for, for Chisel, weighing on his mind, I would imagine. As members of the House of Burgesses continued their investigation, John Chisel's nerves frayed. He was inconsolable, frantic, and very angry. What else could possibly happen to him, he thought. Quite a lot. On the next episode of Tenfold More Wicked on Exactly Right. When you walk into this town, slavery should holler at you from every angle. Because people will come here and look at the beautiful craftsmanship and will remark on it. And just as soon as you say, do you think Mr. Randolph blanked those boards? You can see it. It's amazing. So, Colonel Chisel, he's on his way home from visiting his lead mines, and he stops at a tavern. While he is there, he encounters a merchant who he knows by the name of Robert Rutledge. Scottish merchants. They hate Scottish merchants, because guess what? They're good at it. Yeah. Scots are not well-liked here in Virginia, (laughs) and especially the upper class who are supportive of King George. Scots are rebels, barbarians, and traitors. He is a representation of these guys, these upside guys, these guys who are not gentry, having control over his life. Which puts us right at the scene of the murder, right? If you love a good, real ghost story, my audiobook, The Ghost Club, is available on Audible now. I can't wait to tell you the real story about the world's most famous ghost hunter who was the head of the world's most famous ghost club and how he investigated England's most famous haunted house. Please also check out my books, American Sherlock and All That Is Wicked. This has been an Exactly Right, Tenfold More Media production. Producer Jason Whaling, Senior Producer Alexis Amorosi, Consulting Producer Kyle Ryan, Researcher Nicole Brown, Sound Designer Eric Friend, Composer Curtis Heath, Artwork Nick Toga, Executive Producers Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More.